Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. This one is long coming, so any of the regular listeners will know um, the solo podcasts that I usually do right around Wednesday every week. They haven't been coming lately. It's been, boy, weeks, uh, maybe a month or more since I've had the ability to do it. Just a little word of explanation. Uh, Whole house has been very, very sick since Thanksgiving. Um, pretty brutal, actually. Uh, kind of ran through everybody. Uh, everybody was out for at least a week, um, but the youngest, the youngest in my house, the three-year-old, uh, three-year-old girl, precious little thing, uh, just didn't get better like everyone else. She got worse, and um, she ended up with pneumonia. And we were in the hospital uh, for a while, and um, she's home now, and everything seems to be going in the right direction. Um, she's smiling and playing and everything. So, um, so no need to worry. I think. Uh, kind of on the mend, but it was just completely impossible for me to prepare for any of these or to do any of these solo episodes, so we're going to get back to it today. <clears throat> we're going to get back going to get back to our friend Alfred North Whitehead. There's the fellow there, Alfred North Whitehead. So, challenging a little book and um, getting a little bit deeper into it. So what I want to talk about today is, uh, I'm calling this episode the fable of substance, motion, and space-time. So you might wonder what that means. <clears throat> really what I'm laying out here is the way Alfred North Whitehead sees the world, the way he sees reality, is not like the scientific... Well, it's similar to the scientific narrative, and there's going to be things we're going to talk about today that are contrary to the scientific narrative, um, but there's going to be things that are very much in line with it, especially when we start talking about quantum mechanics, which was something that Whitehead was introduced to kind of in the early days, um, and uh, you know he didn't he didn't live long enough to kind of see where we we have gotten in that um, you know in that quantum sort of venture um, you know in modern days. But he saw the beginning of it. He saw the mystery that it proposed. He saw the scientific paradigms that it undermined, and that especially when we start talking about relativity, which you guys know goes back to Einstein. That's something he adopts wholeheartedly. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead does, and it has really, it, you know, it really creates a thread that goes through his ontological principle, how he sees the world. If you just as a refresher, um, Whitehead sees the world as an experience, and our individual experiences are a part of this greater experience. Everything is nested. You know, all of our experiences are nested in the experiences that came before us. And another weird thing is that Alfred North Whitehead sees experience as 
an organism. That's why his philosophy is sometimes called the philosophy of organism. So these experiences are living beings, just like you and I are. We're a type of this living being, this living experience. Uh, but even the things that we're made of are versions of the same thing, living experiences all, 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 all on their own. And they, they come together and form relationships with one another that create more and more complex experiences, more and more complex creatures. So the whole universe, as far as Whitehead is concerned, is a creature, a living creature. And um, you might be tempted to call that, on the highest level, to call that creature God. But it's, that's not what Whitehead would say. In fact, Whitehead starts off at the lowest, most fundamental level with God. So for him, God is this original experience that kicks off this experiential process that we call the universe. And there is no end to it, by the way. So that so it becomes infinite in, in a way that we are accustomed to calling God infinite. Um, so, so you might think of... I don't know if you've ever uh, seen this before or had this thought exper experiment before, but I remember as, as a kid in science class seeing this video. And it starts out with, um, I think it's like a man and a woman laying on a, like a, like in a park having a picnic. I think that's what it was. They're like laying on a blanket in the park. And uh, they zoom in on like one of the hairs on the guy's head, and they zoom in down further to... Um, you know what you might see from a from a microscope and they uh, they go even further to show you the cells and they go even further down 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 deeper into this picture until you see the um, molecules and the atoms and and then you get basically get to empty space the empty space in between atoms and then it zooms back out to the to the guy and the gal having the picnic and then it zooms out the other direction so you, you go up into the sky and you see you know, the picnic getting smaller and smaller, and then you see, you know, the planet, and then you zoom out and you see the solar system, and then you zoom out and you see, um, you know, the galaxy, and then you zoom out further than that, and you see how the galaxies are all tied together, and you zoom out even further than that until you see nothing but empty space. So it begins and it ends the same way, in this empty space. And we're going to talk about space today. We're going to talk about the space-time continuum, um, what what um, Whitehead is going to call an extensive continuum. We're going to talk about that today. Um, but um, in a nutshell, you, you can imagine if we're zooming out from that picnic, let's say, you can imagine that maybe the, I don't know if you guys have seen this image before, but it's like if you see the network of galaxies from the from the farthest away that we can possibly kind of capture that image. The image itself looks a lot like the neurons, connect, connections of neurons in a, in a brain. It's like these, these strings of gases that, that connect these brighter, you know, brighter spots of, of galaxies, basically, or galaxy clusters. And they're all connected by these sort of threads of colorful gases. And it looks so much like the neurons in a brain. You might imagine that if you zoom out far enough, maybe all this, all the galaxies and the galaxy clusters and all the things that we see out there in the uh, cosmos at the grandest level, maybe they just begin the atomic level of some greater creature, right? And if you could zoom out far enough, which we can't do because there's limits, right, to the observable universe, 
If we could zoom, zoom out far enough, we could see that we're basically, we're basically something like an electron, you know, in this greater being that's made up of, you know, the, the galaxies that make up our, our cosmos. And at this hugely greater scale, those things are just, you know, the atomic level of this greater being. And you can kind of see if that went on forever, that's kind of the picture that Whitehead paints. He paints this idea that experiences create larger experiences, more complex experiences, and they just create others, you know, even greater. And, um, you know, there's one way that you can look at that is just scaling up and scaling up and scaling up. I think it's equally valid, and maybe both are true, that you can see this, maybe not scaling down, but at least scaling in. It's like, there could be a whole universe within me, and a whole universe within that, and a whole universe within that. And so you can see that, you know, kind of pulling in on itself rather than going out outside of itself. And maybe both are true. Maybe it's happening in all these ways. But this is this crazy image that Whitehead sort of creates of how the universe of experience is. And to Whitehead, the universe is experience. We can talk about matter and substance and space and time, and we're going to today. But the question is, how do you make sense of all that stuff if the way you see the universe is like what I just painted? This giant, infinite fractal web of creatures made up of creatures made up of creatures forever. You know? How do you make sense of space and time and motion in a world like that. So that, that kind of brings me to my introduction, and I want to I wanna start this way. Ontology, and we've talked about this many times, but ontology is a branch of philosophy that talks about, it talks about origins, it talks about where, where things came from and, and how, they, how they ended up the way they are. You know, that's my simplification, but that, ontology, just like mysticism, which we talk about a lot, especially when we talk about the religious angles of all of this, and science for that matter. We can lump science into this together. Ontology, mysticism, and science. All of them demand that we accept a conception of reality that's greater, or at least substantially different, from the world that we intuit from our senses. You know, it's like... Um, we had, a, uh, we had an idea, this Newtonian idea of how physics works and um, what gravity was, as an example. And then Einstein comes around and says, yeah, you know, that all, makes, that all makes sense and the math works most of the time. But it's not that objects are, are being pulled towards the center of, of, of uh, mass of a larger object. It's not, it's not really like that. Um, what it is, is, is that objects with mass, they warp the fabric of space and time. And so the, uh, the notion of gravity, the notion of things falling down towards something else, really just has to do with them, with them following the path of the warped space-time. So now we have a new model, right? And so this is what, kind of what I mean. It's like we're, we're, we're expected to be able to think flexibly about our models of the world and to accept things that we can't see exactly. You know, when, when atomic theory and, and when... Uh, when we first invented uh, microscopes and we saw, you know, cells and molecules for the first time and things like that, we had to come to accept that there are living creatures, for lack of a better word, that exist inside of our bodies that make everything work, our organs and, and everything else. 
They're made up of these little constituent things. It's mitochondria, these power powerhouses of the cell, like like a power plant generating you know cellular energy, and you got all these other organelles and, and things moving in and out, taking waste and energy where it needs to go. And you've got this whole little community. You've got this whole society of 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 um, life that has no idea that you exist, but it makes up your fucking body and makes it work and allows you to exist. And we had no idea up until relatively recently that any of that was real. And we can't see it with our naked eye, but we have to admit, right? We have to, we have to expand our models to allow for a greater reality, more going on in our reality than we ever could have imagined. And philosophy and mysticism and science all require that. We have to rethink, or at least be able to reconceptualize, fundamental things like time, space, and matter, or, or what Descartes is going to call substance, and Whitehead is going to call substance today. And these are recurring themes in our quest for understanding. And today we're going to talk about two such fundamental assumptions. We're going to talk about substance and extension. Okay, these are qualities that Descartes and Newton claim as necessary for our reality, and to which Whitehead begs to differ. Is the world made of stuff? That's what substance is. Is it made of stuff? Does it extend and move in space? Our ordinary intuitions here may be right, but they may be wrong. And that brings me to the opening section, which I'm going to call the extensive continuum. All right, so Whitehead is going to talk about this idea of, of an extensive continuum, and by this he makes he makes connections to what you would just what you might call the space-time continuum. Now we, we know from the time of Einstein that space and time aren't exactly different things like we used to believe, but they're one thing, and we know that because because if you travel fast enough, time slows down, and traveling requires movement in space, and so you've got this idea of space, which is what Descartes is going to call extension. You know, space is the idea that I can extend out into something, right? There's, there's some place for me to extend or to move in, and that might seem intuitive. Of course there's extension, but Whitehead is going to, is going to push us on this. And this idea of a continuum, this is also important because what does it mean? What does it mean when, when scientists talk about the space-time continuum? What has implications, like a continuum is a, is a thing, it's a wholeness, it's a thing, but it also is infinite in some ways. There's no end to it in some ways. Um, so that you know, it continues, so, so thus the word continuum. So that kind of set this up for you, and we can see how Whitehead will try to tackle this idea Without further ado, I'll start with Whitehead's own words here. He says, Ordinary perception of space and time is presentational immediacy. I'll stop there for a second. He calls your perception of space and time presentational immediacy. It's like what you're immediately aware of. Okay, So I would call that experience, really, or awareness or something like that. But, he, but he's tying this to our perception, like what we see and sense and feel immediately around us all the time. That's something that you might call space and time. But he also calls it presentational immediacy, and that's interesting to me, because 
the immediacy part I get. I mean, it's your immediate experience. But the presentational part seems to imply some kind of representation, right? Presentational immediacy. It's almost like what you're seeing is secondhand somehow. So let me continue. He says, in this, uh, by this he means presentational immediacy, in this the world is prehended as a continuum of extensive relationships. So for those who maybe didn't listen to the last few Whitehead episodes, I'll let you know what he means by prehended. So what he means when he says prehended is something like incorporating something that seems to be outside of yourself into your own experience, to bring it into your own experience. Really, to Whitehead, what you are is an experience. So it's something like bringing it into yourself, incorporating it into yourself. So he says the world is sort of incorporated into your, your the experience that you are as a continuum of extensive relationships. What does that mean? Well, it's just really obvious. You look around, you have experiences. What it seems like to you is that there are things outside of yourself that exist in this extended space. And they all have relations to you. You know, some are to the right of you, some are to the left of you, some are up or down, you know, some are in the past or the future, uh, some are part of you, right? They, they all have some relationships to you and to one another. And that's, of course, that's what it seems like. That's what space and time and our immediate experience seems like. And he says, the world is objectified for us with its parts discriminated by differences of sense data. These qualities, such as colors, sounds, bodily feelings, tastes, smells, together with the perspectives induced by relationships, are the eternal objects whereby actual entities are elements in our own constitution. All right, so there's a lot there, especially if you haven't listened to the other Whitehead episodes, you're probably very lost. So let me just take this kind of slowly. When he says the world is objectified for us, um, this has a particular meaning. What, what he explained earlier is that everything is one experience to Whitehead. But in order to have an experience, you have to have a perspective or a subjective, um, you have to be a subject. So part of this experience has to become a subject. And, and when it does, everything else becomes an object. Right? Even though subject and object to Whitehead really aren't different things, it's necessary for, um, for experience, for part of, for part of um, you know, what exists to take on a point of view. A perspective to become a subject and that's how you and I imagine ourselves to be as a subject you know as something looking out through my eyes in this direction in this particular point in time and space um, you know and so we have a uh, a particular perspective and when we do that everything else around us that seems to be outside of us is is objectified they become objects in the world to us and he said that we discriminate those things by the differences in our sense data. Well, no shit, right? I mean, one thing seems different from another thing because of the way it looks, right? It looks like it's separated from the other thing. It doesn't look at all like the couch doesn't, doesn't look, like, look like the door and vice versa. So yeah, you're gonna have different sense experiences of, uh, of you know, objects. And that's gonna help you to distinguish that there are these unique, discrete things out there in the world. Then he says these qualities, such as colors, sounds, bodily feelings, taste, smells, 
together with perspectives induced by relationships, are the eternal objects. Let me stop there for a second. So you'll notice that what he's talking about now, these, these different qualities, things that you can pick up with your senses, like colors and sounds and feelings, that those are all things that, well, that David Chalmers would call them qualia. They're things that are associated with our consciousness, with our experience, and aren't really associated with the world at all. In fact, there's no way, according to Chalmers and others, there's no way for physics to explain the feeling of anything, whether it be a taste or a smell or an emotion. There's no way for physics to describe it. It's, it's, it doesn't, it's just impossible, right? It's impossible. Uh, it doesn't supervene on the physical. That's what Chalmers says. So he says the, these things, these, these qualia, these things that exist you know, outside of physics somehow, they exist only in our experience, they're what he calls eternal objects. And eternal objects, or you know, I like to say eternal objects of experience, these, these are really perhaps the only things that we are experiencing. Um, that they, and, and, and let, me, let me explain really quickly why they're eternal, because I think this is important. Um, an example that was given is um, in, in before, and I'm, I've talked about it before, is something like a color. You might say that you see red uh, in a flower, you see red in some berries, and you see red in the horizon of a sunset, let's say. Um, the, fact that, the fact that physics doesn't allow for the feeling or the quality of, of a color, doesn't explain that, the fact that they exist at all is a mystery. And the fact that I can't exactly say that those colors exist in those objects because they're really a part of my experience. And here's the weird thing, is if I should perish, if I pass away, somebody else will be able to come stand in that same spot that I'm standing in and see the red berries and see the red sunset. They're going to pick up on that same quality, right? That was a part of my experience, and now it's a part of theirs. How do you explain that? because it's not associated with the physical world. So how do you explain that? So what happens is you have to understand that there's something eternal about those qualities that transcends, even though it's a part of my experience, it transcends me and it transcends those objects that represent that quality. It's a part of any experience, all experience. It doesn't have to just be mine. And so it doesn't matter as time passes on and creatures come and go. Those experiences are eternal. They're always going to be perceptible, right, by a conscious being. So that's what eternal objects are. And he goes a bit further here. He says that eternal objects whereby actual entities are elements in our own constitution. And that requires some explanation, especially if you haven't listened to the other Whitehead episodes. He, he talks about actual entities and eternal objects a lot, and these are the fundamental kind of vocabulary words to understanding Whitehead. Actual entities are experiences. They're acts of experience. That, that's it, or drops of experience, he sometimes calls them. They are the constituent elements of experience, the most basic forms of experience, but they're also what the world is made of. And the thing that he explains about these actual entities is that there's something like there's something like capsules that can contain eternal objects of experience. So it's like this: I, I can't experience eternal objects, 
until they become part of an actual entity, until they become part of an experience. And he, he doesn't exactly explain this well, at least not as far as I'm concerned, but what he does say is that eternal objects ingress into experience, into these actual entities. And he just uses this word ingress to mean that they go into them so that they can be experienced. So actual entities are necessary. Experience is necessary for these eternal objects to attach themselves to so that they can become experienced. And what's being experienced, these eternal objects, they're, they're no different from qualia, like, like David Chalmers talks about, these, these um, qualitative experiences, these feelings that we have, what it's like to be a human being in all these various ways. Um, and that includes all of our sense experience. All right, he goes on, he says, our direct perception of the world is reduced to extension, defining our own perspectives, possibilities of mutual perspectives, and possibilities of division. These possibilities of division constitute a continuum. Okay, so here we're trying to still trying to understand this extensive continuum and what he means. And you can still keep in your mind the space-time idea because that's going to be helpful. Okay, so when he says that our perception of the world is reduced to extension, and that, that extension defines our own perspective. So you can see what the world is like to me from my perspective. And also the possibilities of mutual perspectives. That means what the world might be like to you, what the world might be like to a frog, what it might be like to an atom, all that, all that sort of thing. There's other ways of experiencing the world, other perspectives. And then he says possibilities of division, and I think this is tied directly to the last two. He's this idea of perspectives. So if, according to Whitehead, everything is an experience, and you have to, you have to be a subject, remember, to have an experience at all. It's like you have a perspective. As soon as, as soon as a part of the experience becomes a subject, it has a perspective. And clearly, I'm not the only perspective. I know lots of other human beings. I know I've encountered lots of other animals and living creatures, but, but also all the things that we don't generally conceive of as living that also, according to Whitehead and myself, have experience. And each one of us has a different perspective, and a, a, you know, a different world, for lack of a better word. I mean, what, if you can imagine what an atom experiences, what the world must seem like to an atom, can you imagine how much how vastly different that must be for, for, from our experience? Yeah, how about the experience of a parasite living in my eyebrow hairs? How about, a, how about the experience of a, of a blind sheep? I mean, all of these things must be dramatically different. But all are, are possible and all are real. And this is what he means by division, right? You have this infinite experience. And when you choose a perspective, it divides the world between subject and object. You know, I'm now the subject, everything else is, are objects to me. And that's a certain division of this infinite thing that makes experience possible. And he says the possibility of divisions constitute a continuum. So, space-time, the way that we think about it now, he's saying that that, that, that sort of continuum, it's not like what... Um, what science would, would tell you. It's not like an infinite expanse of space. It's not like a theater for, you know, atoms and stars. You know, it's not, it's not a three or four dimensional, you know, 
Gilbert Sp- Hilbert space or whatever the physics physicists say. No. It's simply the possibility for division. It's the possibility for for experience to become a subject in all sorts of an infinite number of ways. That's it. He goes on, he says, the world as perceived by the senses is continuous, divisible, but not divided. The world is in fact divided and atomic, being a multiplicity of actual entities. These actual entities are divided from each other and are not themselves divisible. All right, so you're going to notice that there's a little bit of a paradox going on here with this being divisible and not being divisible talk. But let's see if we can break this down. He said the world is continuous. The way that we perceive the world is continuous. It's divisible. We know that because we can see, you know, discrete objects. This is not that, right? We, we, we have this perception of there being differences in the world, things being other than from me and from, from each other. But it's, it's not divided, is it? Because the world is one thing. You know, I can't cut a piece of the world out and remove it. Where am I removing it to? Right? It's always going to be in the world. So even though it's divisible, it's not divided. It's, it's still a unity. It's still a wholeness. And then he says the world is in fact divided and atomic, being a multiplicity of actual entities. Okay, so you remember, actual entities are experiences that are living, breathing things, for lack of a better way of explaining it. Um, they exist in relationship to one another, they constitute other entities, you know, um, by aggregate or, or through this relationship they have with other things. And so what he means here when he says atomic is like each experience is its own individual thing. It's like an atom. And you can't break that down. An atom is an atom. Um, and experience is like that. But just like atoms can come together to build, you know, molecules, that's what happens with experience. Experience can come together to become new experiences greater experiences, things that Whitehead calls nexus and societies, things like that. And he says these actual entities are divided from each other and are not themselves divisible. Okay, so the experience that I am and the experience that the couch is, right, they're, they're divided. They're, to me, in my perception, we're not the same thing. And yet, we're part of one world. We're part of one experience. And there is no way of removing me or this couch from this experience, if that makes sense. Okay, he says, The objectified entity assumes the role of a datum in the experience of the subject. But the aboriginal potentiality, which they realize, is what they contribute in their objectifications. All right, gobbledygook, Whitehead. What do you mean here, man? Let me give it my best shot. When he says, the objectified entity assumes the role of a datum in the experience of the subject. What he means here is, when this, when this one thing that makes up the universe, when this, when this one great experience or process of experience assumes a subject, when, when suddenly my consciousness kicks on and I'm seeing the world now from my unique perspective, everything else becomes objects, Right? Everything else becomes somehow different from me. I'm the subject and everything else is an is object. This is what he means by objectification. And so all of the things in the world around me that I experience as objects, they're data in my experience. They're objects in my experience. That's all he's saying. 
the objectified entity assumes the role of a datum in the experience of the subject. The world, apart from me, apart from my perspective, my first-person perspective, becomes data in my experience, things that I can experience. Then he says something weird. He says, but the aboriginal potentiality, which they realize, is what they contribute in their objectifications. What in the Sam Hell, man? What does he mean by aboriginal potentiality? So when he, when he talks about potentiality, he's talking about something that is necessary for anything to be made real, for anything to be actualized. You know, I, I'm going to call that the raw material for experience, whatever that might be. Now, when he says that uh, these these objects, right, the objects in my world, um, they realize this aboriginal potentiality. What does that mean? Okay, so. I'm going to say it a different way. When I say that potentiality is whatever it is that makes experience possible, I like calling that God. It seems real cut and dry to me. So the objects in the world are God, or the raw material for experience, being realized in a certain way, being made real to me. And that's what reality seems like, right? All around me, all the things around me, that's what's real. And so all of this, this greater experience that I'm a part of you know, from the perspective of myself as a subject, all becomes like objects. And those objects are like God made real. And there's no difference between those objects and myself, by the way. Because any other perspective, any other perspective in that experience looks at me as an object. The same way I look at them as an object. And we're all God made, made manifest, made incarnate in different ways. Alright, and he goes on, he says... The bare potentialities of the continuum require additional content in order to assume the role of objects for the subject. Okay, so it's not enough to just have potentiality, whatever that means exactly. There's something else that's needed for, for, for it to be, to be an object for me. He says, this content is supplied by the eternal objects termed sense data. So I've got whatever it is potentiality means, the raw material of experience, it has to come along with some eternal object of experience. And those are the, those are the things that we were calling qualia earlier, the qualities of the world, the way things feel and seem to us, the way, the way, that, the way that they come to us through our senses and our emotions and so forth. And then he says these objects are given for the experience of the subject. Well, that's exactly right. That's what it seems like. You know, I look out, I see things, I smell things, I feel things, and all that is just a given to me. It's just immediately, again, presentational immediacy. It's just, bam, it's there. You know, that's how it seems to me. And he says, since data are eternal objects, playing a complex relational role, they connect the actual entities of the past with the actual entities of the contemporary world. Okay, so... So that, that goes back to that example I was talking about earlier with color. I was talking about looking at that red, red color on the sunset, you know, and, and trying to figure out where that red is. It's not in the sunset. Physics has proven that. It, it's part of my experience, but even when my experience is dead and gone, somebody else can go and experience that color in, this, in the sunset. And so that feeling, 
and that experience of color, it transcends my experience and it transcends the material world. And it's a part of every experience. And so that is how, that is how it transcends time. When he says that, that it connects the actual entities uh, of the past with the actual entities of, of the present, that's what he means. He goes on, he says, in objectification, an abstraction is made. And that's interesting. It's like, a lot of times when we think about the world, um, and I've made, this, I've made this point before, it's like our experience of the world is colored by the limitations of our body. It's like, I know that I can't look at my hand and see the cells or the atoms, right? I, I can only see a certain level of reality. There's a lot more going on, a lot more that's real than what's available to me. So what I have when I look at my hand is something like a model of what it is. It's like a low-resolution model of what it is. It's not at all, you know, encapsulating everything it is. It's just kind of the minimum level of understanding that I need to use my hand, right? Something like a representation. It's not the real thing. It's like a representation. And I think that's what he means when he says that in objectification and abstraction is made, right? So when I take the, when this experience that makes up the universe takes on a, a, a subjective um, perspective, and let's call that me or you, and we look out at the world, we see the world the way it is for us. And that world is like a representation of the world. It's not, it's not everything the world is. It's an abstraction. It's something like a model or a simplification of what the world is. It's not reality exactly. The other thing that, that objectification does is it disguises other subjects, right? It turns them into symbols or data. I'll put that differently. You know, when I said that Whitehead sees reality as, um, as this unity of experience, this one, this one thing that we call experience, and it takes on a subjective perspective. And you know, that's what I call me and my, you know, my perspective of the world. But I'm not the only perspective, right? You are, and maybe the, maybe the, the, every atom is, and maybe everything is. So when I take on this perspective of being a subject and everything else becomes an object to me, I have to realize kind of, kind of behind the scenes here, all of these objects that to me seem like objects are themselves subjects. They're actual entities, just like I am, just like God is, according to Whitehead. We all have our own perspective of the world. We all have our own world, you know? And so when, I, when, when the world is objectified for me that way, and that's just part of being conscious, it disguises the idea that there are other subjects in some real way, and it turns them into something like symbols, something like abstractions. All right, then he says the conclusion is that the ingression of the eternal objects into the experience of a subject involves a complex relationship whereby the sense datum emerges. Now earlier, he talked about the sense, the sense datum uh, being the world. So you might read this differently. You might read this and say, the conclusion is that the ingression of the eternal objects into the experience of a subject 
involves a complex relationship whereby the world emerges. Whew, buddy. And you can see that. You know, the eternal objects are the qualia of our experience, the, the things that we experience, um, the, way, the, things, the way that things feel, the, you know, the, the emotions that we have, the uh, perceptions that we receive from our senses, all of that sort of thing. That's the world. So these eternal objects create this, rela this, this relationship that we call the world. It's like he's saying that these eternal objects are made real. And I like to use the word incarnated here. I know it's a religious word, but I think it's appropriate. When he talks about something being made real, sometimes he uses the word concrescence. And what he means by that is something potential being made actual. And I can't help but see religious symbolism there. That, to me, sounds like incarnation, right? Something potential, we might call that God, being made actual. We might call that, you know, the material reality. You know, we're a human being, right? That's the Jesus story, God being made flesh. This is what I see when he talks about eternal objects, right? These potential things being made real or being actualized. So I'm going to say that they're incarnated into the world, into the world of experience by ingressing into an experiencing subject. Experience is the transforming mechanism that actualizes pure potentiality. I think that's, that's the message of today, really. We're going to hear this over and over and over again. Experience is the thing that makes potential actual. It's the thing that makes God real. And I don't mean makes God real in the sense that God is fake and has to be made real. I don't mean that. I mean to be made materially present in the, in the, in the way that we ordinarily call reality or real. It's amazing. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call God. God. Here we go. Whitehead says, The actual world conditions and limits the potentiality for creativeness beyond itself. This is a limitation laid upon the general potentiality provided by eternal objects. Alright, so I know it's probably gobbledygook, but let me make sense of this for you as best I can. He says, The actual world conditions and limits the potentiality for creativeness beyond itself. And I think what this is telling us is that even though creativity and this creative impulse and creative power that's driving novelty and change and creating new experiences, according to Whitehead, he calls this the creative advance of the universe. Even though that is infinite, you know, it's like anything new can be made. It's like, where's the end to that? There is no end to that. You know, it's like, Constantly, the potential for something new that's never existed before can just happen. But that's, but that's limited. Even though it's infinite, it's limited in, in this strange way. And this, is, and this is what he says. He says it limits the potentiality for creativeness beyond itself. Beyond itself. And that, that, I think, is the key. Because according to Whitehead, experience builds on itself. Right? So one experience maybe joins together with another experience to become a new thing. And I used an example before in a prior lecture about uh, nostalgia. Right? I said, 
And nostalgia is an interesting experience. As I get older, it's something I experience more and more. But it's like that experience isn't possible until I've had an experience of pain, until I've had an experience of time, and until I've had an experience of positive emotion or, or, or a positive memory. It's like I need all of those things together to create a new experience that I, I can call nostalgia. Because it includes all of that. And I think that's a, that's a good enough analogy to make sense of this. It's like what's come before is going to limit or condition what can come next. And even though that, that is infinite, you know, creativity has no bounds, um, it's still conditioned by what's come before it because it can only arise from what's come before it. You can think about like biological evolution. You can think about, you know, what creature is, hum- is human being going to become next? So it's hard to imagine what the limits are to that. And, you know, it could be anything. And we're, you know, we can make a thousand guesses. And we're, we're all going to be wrong, I'm sure. But whatever the next creature is that we evolve into is bounded somehow, right? Because it has to come from us. It has to come from what already is. And I think that's what he means when he says that potentiality is limited for creativity beyond itself. Because it's always going to take into consideration itself. That's all it has to work with. And he says, this is a limitation laid upon the general potentiality provided by eternal objects. So I don't know what general potentiality means except for God, but that's what it sounds like to me. It's a limitation laid upon God. And another way of saying this might be that what exists conditions what novelty can emerge next. Or you might say that creation limits God. Isn't that an interesting way of thinking about it? We, you know, from a religious perspective, we think about God creating, right? God is responsible for creation. What Whitehead is saying is creation then limits God. And so you kind of get this picture of creation and creator as really not different things, but one thing. And they work upon one another. And I think that's true. I think that's something that mystic intuition tells you. I think that's true. All right, he goes on. We have always to consider two meanings of potentiality. The general potentiality which is provided by the eternal objects, and the real potentiality, which is conditioned by the actual world. General potentiality is absolute. Real potentiality is relative to some actual entity. All right, the first time I read this, I was like, what What do you mean? What do you mean here, Whitehead? I, I, really, I really struggled with this um, when I first read it. But I think this is how this is how I've come to understand it. When he says there's two meanings of potentiality, and one of them is the general potentiality. This I go back to this kind of way I was a little bit of a thought experiment experiment that I was doing uh, kind of after my first mystic experience um, to try to understand God. And one of the ways that I did that was to imagine undifferentiated experience. So, and that might be a, a, another good way of understanding the way that Whitehead considers reality to be one experience. Um, you, can, you can imagine an experience that has no qualities. 
And it's really not any, any different, let's say, from imagining an experience that has all possible qualities. Because it's undifferentiated. There's no way to distinguish anything from it from itself. It's like if it has no qualities or if it has them all, that's kind of the same thing. So general potentiality is something like undifferentiated potentiality. You think about that like a stem cell. That's a cell that, that hasn't yet become any particular kind of cell, but can become any kind of cell. And I, I think that's a good analogy. Then he says, um, in addition to this general potentiality, then you've got the real potentiality. And by that, I think he means the potentiality that's been actualized, that we can call real. But you might also call that the differentiated potentiality versus, you know, versus the undifferentiated. Because as soon as you differentiate, right, then you have specific things. Then you, then you can experience them because they don't have all the qualities anymore. They have specific qualities. Now they're experienceable. So you've got the general potentiality, which you might call undifferentiated. And you've got the real potentiality, which, you know, you might call differentiated. Something like that. It's about the best I can do. Then he says general potentiality is absolute and real potentiality is relative. Okay, and you can see that. You can see that. I would look at these things as being both legitimate and also being sort of two sides of one coin. Because these are both potentiality. Now, you can call them general or real, but we're describing two qualities, let's say, of one thing. Potentiality. And again, to me, potentiality is synonymous with God. You know, the potential is that which is necessary for whatever it is we're talking about. In this case, reality. So that which is necessary for reality, that's, that's what we call God. And there's no way around it. So I think we're here, he's talking about two sides of, of a conceptualization of God. General potentiality and real potentiality. And the real potentiality, this is, this is the actualized bit. This is the bit that I would equate with, you know, actual experience or actual reality. You know, potential is the potential for experience or the potential for reality. And the real is the actualized version. So you've got the potential made actual. And both sides, the potential and the actual, are actually one thing. The thing that I would call God. Creator and creation together. All right, then he, then he goes on. He says, the actual world must always mean the community of all actual entities, including the primordial actual entity called God. In the philosophy of organism, God's existence is not different from that of other actual entities, except that he is primordial. So now we're getting right to it. What is God to Whitehead? Well, the world is an experience, and God is the primordial experience. It's the thing that kicks off this experiential process. He doesn't, he doesn't provide an, an explanation for this, at least that I've seen so far, that I consider to be satisfactory. But I have, but I have a, well, kind of a thought experiment that I've talked about before that I think does illustrate this in a way that makes sense. And um, I'll do my best. I'm going to summarize this. I've done it before. I'll summarize it my best I can. It, it, it's something like this. 
I was sitting in a sensory deprivation tank. I was just meditating on the idea of God, trying to understand it, and the idea of experience, trying to understand it. And as I sat there in the tank, I could see nothing, I could feel nothing. I was just consciousness. I was just awareness, basically. I wasn't aware of anything in particular because I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have any sense data coming to me. You know, eyes were open or eyes were closed and looked no different in the tank. I couldn't feel my body because the water temperature was exactly that of my body. You know, I couldn't feel my limbs. I couldn't feel my body. It was just like I was floating in space, floating in darkness, you know? And I asked myself, you're aware right now, but what are you aware of? And it dawned on me that I was aware of being aware. And that may sound silly, but the truth is, even, even without any sense data coming in, I was still conscious of being conscious. And that was like an epiphany to me. Because what I realized is, and I, I believe that God and consciousness are, are very closely linked together, maybe synonyms, right? So, so in the beginning, you might say, God is having an experience. And even though there is nothing to have an experience of, just like me in the tank, God was having an experience of himself or itself, you know, an experience of consciousness, consciousness of consciousness, exactly that. And that is an experience, you know, go in a sensory depri deprivation tank long enough, clear your mind long enough, and you will realize exactly that. It is an experience. The other thing I realized is that, and we're going we're gonna to see this a little bit later when we start talking about Descartes, is that you're not the same after you have an experience. You know, you're, you're transformed by an experience. So, you know, if I use an example of a, of a powerful experience like falling in love or getting your heart broken or whatever, you'll know what I mean. It's like when you fall in love, you're no longer the same person you once were. When your heart is broken for the first time, you're no longer the person that you were before. So you can understand how, how every experience, especially those powerful ones, but every experience changes the experiencer, right? So if, if, if what God is doing is experiencing, you know, if God is consciousness of consciousness, and each time, you know, each time God experiences itself, it's changed by that experience, then every subsequent experience of God is going to be an experience of something new because he's changed each and every time. And you just get this cycle of new experience all the time. And it, having that thought just blew the top off my head because I, I realized that that's exactly what my experience is like. That's exactly what the world is like. Constantly changing and transforming in subtle ways. Building on that change forever. Okay. He goes on, he says... Real potentialities are diverse determinations of one extensive continuum. This extensive continuum is one relational complex in which all potential objectifications find their niche. It underlies the whole world, past, present, and future. Okay. Okay, what does he mean? Real, real potentialities are diverse determinations of one extensive continuum. So we, we already know this. It's like... The, the divisions that we're talking about that make 
that divide up this infinite experience into things that are experienceable, you know, finite experienceable things. This is kind of what he means when he says diverse determinations. It's like any, uh, you know, any subjective perspective in this in this infinite experience is a different perspective. It's a different experience of the world, and there's there's an infinite number of those diverse determinations, and they're all related to one another, right? So he says the extensive continuum is one relational complex in which all potential objectifications find their niche. So this idea of an extensive continuum, we go back to this idea of space-time as, as an analogy. Well, the way that Whitehead understands this is like the possibility of having these divisions and relationships that allow for different perspectives, that allow for, for different subjective perspectives of this experience that we call reality. So that's his idea of space-time. It's whatever it is that makes this relational complex possible, that allows for experience. That which makes experience possible. Does that sound like space-time to you? I mean, it does and it doesn't. He says, an extensive continuum is a complex of entities united by the relationships of whole to part and of overlapping as to possess common parts and of contact and of other relationships derived from these. A continuum involves both the property of, of indefinite divisibility and the property of unbounded extension. Okay, so this extensive continuum allows for this um, relational you know, complex, this relational complex uh, between you know, parts of the whole. And that's what, that's what makes experience possible, because a subject can see the rest of the world as objects and, uh, you know, break, break apart this infinite thing into something limited and finite and, and experienceable. Then he says a continuum involves the property of indefinite divisibility, and that's just the, the kind of the infinite possibility of relationships, the infinite possibility of subjective perspectives, um, you know, the infinite way that it can be divided up and the property of unbounded extension, right? There is no end to it. It's just that fractal idea again. You know, it can be divided up in an infinite number of ways because there is no end to this experience that we're talking about. It builds on itself. New relationships are, 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 are made possible by, by new experiences kind of coming on the scene. And it's just, you know, like an, like an infinite web of kind of neurons connected in a brain, something like that. He says, the extensive continuum expresses the solidarity of all possible standpoints throughout the whole process of the world. It is not a fact prior to the world. It is the first determination of real potentiality arising out of the general character of the world. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. All right, so the extensive continuum expresses the solidarity of all possible standpoints throughout the whole process of the world. So what he's talking about here is all the possible division within the experience. You can imagine each one of those divisions being its own subject, like you are, like I am. And yet, even though we see ourselves as kind of other, we see ourselves as unique from one another, we're all part of one thing, one universe, one experience, one consciousness. So 
all of these various standpoints, perhaps infinite number of, of perspectives or experiences of the world are brought into unity, you know? They're, they're, they're really one thing. And he says the possibility of, of division, you know, this extensive continuum, this thing that makes experience possible, he says it's not prior to the world. It is the first determination of real potentiality arising out of the general character of the world. Now you might imagine that you, you have to have the ability to experience the world before you could say there is a world, right? You know, and, and, and this is not what Whitehead says. He says something more like what we said a little bit earlier, that creator and creation are one. They're one thing. And he also says this, this sort of strange thing here where he says, um, he says real potentiality arising out of the general character of the world. But what I want to know is, what does he mean by the general character of the world? What is the general character of the world? Now I have some suspicions about what that means, right? Because remember, the world is experienced from a subject, from a sub subjective perspective, right? So every perspective of the world has a subject, right? And that's something like what I would call consciousness. And it seems like maybe that is what he's getting at. The general character of the world is like that. What, what every perspective has in common. You know, being a subject. And then he says, actual entities atomize the extensive continuum. The continuum is merely the potentiality for division. An actual entity affects this division. All right, so an actual entity, remember, that's, that's an experience, an active experience. And it, it, it says that atomizes the extensive continuum. So it takes something that's infinite and it makes it something discrete and finite. It takes something infinite and it makes it, it takes something that's not able to be experienced, something infinite, and it makes it something that is experienceable. That's what he's saying. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Becoming or Changing. So Whitehead says, With the becoming of any actual entity, what was previously potential is now real in something actual. Alright, so it's, it's important to remember, when Whitehead talks about becoming, he, you know, he's, he's talking about actual entities which are just experiences. He explains that new experiences come about by joining together with other experiences um, through various types of relationships, you know, through accumulation and so forth, um, that experiences build on each other and become new things. And here he says, with the becoming of any actual entity, so this is the creation of some new experience. He says, what was previously potential, right, the potential for this new experience, is now real in something actual. So what is that thing that makes it real? It's, it's an experience. It's a new actual entity. So the experience makes it real. And again, here we, here we see that again. This is absolutely key. What takes, what takes potential and makes it actual, what takes God and makes it real, is experience, according to Whitehead.
And he says, this initial phase is a direct derivative from God's primordial nature. God is the organ of novelty. Boy, oh boy. All right, he says, every actual entity in its relationship to other actual entities is somewhere in the continuum. But in another sense, it is everywhere throughout the continuum. Right, okay, so every actual entity, so every experience, in its relationship to all the other experiences, right? So I'm an experience, and the world is an experience, and all the objects in the world are experiences. So in this continuum, in this, this relationship among all these different experiences, any one experience is somewhere in that, in that continuum. But he says it's also everywhere throughout the continuum, right? Because the continuum is one thing. So what is... What is in one part of it is belongs to the whole to all of it, right? It's it's one thing. And so he says, thus the continuum is present in each actual entity, and each actual entity pervades the continuum. And there's all kinds of mystics. There's all kinds of mystics who've said things like this, you know, that uh, you might say that the infinite is in the finite, and the finite is in the infinite, something like that. And in fact, there's a there's a quote from uh, Hermes Trismegistus, um, which we did uh, a few episodes on once upon a time, that goes like this, very, very similar. It says, God is an infinite sphere whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. And again, you see a paradox here. You know, and anytime you see that sort of a paradox, I think there's something mystical going on. There's something worth our attention uh, going on. And so when when Whitehead says that every actual entity is somewhere in the continuum, but in another sense, everywhere throughout the continuum, again, I cannot help but hear echoes of Hermes. God is an infinite sphere whose center is everywhere, circumference nowhere. All right, he says... Potential does not determine its own atomization by actual entities. It is divisible, but its real division by actual entities depends upon the actual entities constituting the antecedent environment. So this just goes back to the example I said before. What is a human being going to evolve to next? Whatever it's going to evolve into, you know, as, as infinite as the possibilities might be, it's going to be limited by what I am now, right? By what we are. Because it has to come from what we are. And that's what he means when he says the actual entities constituting the antecedent environment. Whatever comes next is going to be dependent on what's come before it. And another way of saying that is that becoming is limited or, or conditioned by what has been. And he goes on, he says, Every act of becoming is divisible into earlier and later sections, which are themselves acts of becoming. Okay, so this is interesting. It's like, you can imagine yourself as a, as a creature that's becoming. Right? You're always changing, you're maturing, your physical attributes are changing, your, your psychological attributes are changing, your personality's changing, your, your experience is changing. Every second, right? Every second you're somebody different than you were before. That's what we call becoming. And you can say, you know, what I am now came from what I was before. 
and you kind of see that historical explanation for what you are. But here's the question. Where is being in the act of becoming? Where am I? Right? If I'm something that's constantly transforming, where am I in all, in all of this? Where is the subject? It's always changing. It's never the same. Is, so where is it? And, you know, I think Whitehead, Whitehead keys in on this. He, this is what he calls process. This is why his philosophy is called process philosophy. But while we're talking about this idea of becoming, let's dig in. He, he says, if we consider the process of becoming up to the beginning and ask what then becomes, no answer can be given. For whatever creature we indicate presupposes an earlier creature which became. Therefore, there is nothing which becomes. Whew, buddy, makes the hair stand up on my arms. So we're this process of becoming, but we're never being, right? We're always changing and, and, and transforming into something new. And if you try to chase back, what am I now came from, and I became what I am now from what I once was. And you can keep going back as far as you want into what you once were. But you have to ask yourself, where, where did that come from? It came from something from something else that was becoming. And so there's, ne there's nothing which becomes. So you've got this process of transformation, but nothing's transforming. What does that mean? It's another one of those paradoxes. And the only way I can make sense of this is, is to say that it's not nothing, which he's saying is, is the origin of becoming. It, it's nothing actual, you know, but it is something potential. And I think there's a qualitative difference, right, between potential and actual. And so the process of becoming is really the process of, the, of potential becoming actual. Potential, the thing that I call God, becoming manifest, becoming incarnate in experience. God experiencing itself. All right, then Whitehead says, Prehension is the actual world objectified with a perspective. Okay, this is what I've been saying all day long. Remember, when he talks about prehension, he's talking about the way in which the way in which things exist. How, how do I say this? The way in which we things are incorporated into the experience that we are. So that's how we that's how we become from what experiences have come before us through this prehension, right? We, we uh, Earlier I was talking about how we prehend the world by incorporating it into the experience that we are. Okay, so this, this is a good way of coming, coming at this one. He says, prehension is the actual world objectified with a perspective. Um, you might just call that the world as a subject. That's how we experience ourselves to be. And Whitehead says, Apprehension acquires subjective form, which is only rendered determinate by integration with the mental pole of the res vera. Res vera, I had to look up, just means the real or the actual. Okay? So, apprehension acquires subjective form, right? The subject, the, the idea of being a, a perspective, of being a conscious being. And that's only rendered determinate by integration with the mental pole of the actual. What does that mean? The mental pole of the actual. So let's keep pushing through and see if he gives us any hints here. He says, 
concrescence, and remember, this is the process of potential becoming actual. I, I might call this incarnation, right? He says concrescence is dominated by a subjective aim. The subjective aim is the subject in potential, itself determining its own, its own self-creation. The mental pole determines the subjective form and is inseparable from the total res vera, from the total of what's real and actual. So there's something about this mental pole that plays a role in the self-creation of whatever new experience is coming about. I know that's probably difficult to wrap your brain around, but it seems to me like the mental pole might be the answer to this question that we, he brought up earlier about the general character of the world that we were talking about. So this, this is linked to the mental pole. Um, and the mental pole of, of the actual world. It's like the, the implication being maybe the potential doesn't have a mental pole. But the potential is actually just half of this, of this wholeness that also requires the actual. The potential and the actual. And the actual contains a mental pole. And I can kind of understand that in the sense that I'm an actualized being and I have a mental pole. I have, I have a mind. And so maybe our minds, our subjective perspective, gives mind to potential. It gives mind to God. We are the thing that incarnates mind for God and as a part of God. I can't help but think that this begins to sound like idealist philosophy. This is like idealism. And I wonder if this mental pole, which is divisible into actual experience, does this make mind the substance that Whitehead so adamantly tries to avoid? You know, he takes issue with this idea of substance and materialism, and I wonder how he gets around that. When he, when he talks about the mental pole being, well, being required for experience. Somebody like Bernardo Castrop is going to call that mentation. He's going to say that all that exists is mind, and everything else is illusion. And I just don't know how far away that really is from Whitehead's philosophy. All right, the last bit in this section, he says... The extensive continuum is that relational element in experience, whereby the experienced and the experience itself are united in the solidarity of one common world. Man, I fucking love that. The extensive continuum. So, you know, the scientific parallel is the space-time continuum. So space and time is that relational element in experience whereby the experienced and the experience itself are united. Where the subject and object are united. Where the experiencer and the experienced are united. That's beautiful. He says the actual entities atomize it and thereby make real what was merely potential. So by experience, what was potential becomes real. Here, here again we see experience is what makes something real. To be experienced is to be real, is to be actualized. And that's so different from the scientific message. It's not, to the scientific message, to be real has nothing to do with experience. You know, it's like if, if, all of, if all of consciousness was destroyed, you know, modern science believes 
there's still real material substrate to reality out there. There's still space and time and stars and black holes and everything else. And Whitehead says, no. Those things only exist in experience. They're only real in experience. And without experience, they fade away into potential. They fade away into some kind of Jungian unconscious that, that exists but isn't real in the sense of being experienceable. And that's the only way that we understand what real means. So to experience potential makes potential real. And experience originates in the mental pole. Amazing. That brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Descartes' Error. It says, uh, Descartes assumes that his mental substances endure change. Each time he pronounces, I am, I exist, the actual occasion, which is the ego, is different. And the he, which is common to the two egos, is an eternal object. Okay. So this is like one of those, you know, you never step in the same river twice sort of things. But what he's saying is that Descartes talks about mental substances changing. And clearly Whitehead doesn't think that's, that's the case. But that's what Descartes says. Um, you know, he believes that each time, each time Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. But in this case, he says, I am, I exist. Each time he says that, he's a slightly different person who's saying it. You know, he's, it's a different ego. It's a changed or transformed ego. And whatever it is that's consistent in, you know, between those two egos, that, that, that is continuous, that's carried forward, that, to Descartes, is the eternal object. And Whitehead says, he associates this act of experience with his body and appeals for some final notion of actual entities in the remarkable sentence, quote, Although a body, eyes, a head, hands, and such like may be imaginary, we are bound at the same time to confess that there are at least some other objects yet more simple and more universal, which are real, and of these our thoughts are formed. Whew, buddy. Okay, so... So Descartes can deny, he can say everything about what he believes about himself in the world to be an illusion, even his own body. But he can't deny that the, that the components of his thoughts, that those are real. And of course, Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. And he cannot deny the reality of mentation, even in, if the physical is an illusion. And why it goes on, he says, Notice the intimate association with immediate experience, which Descartes claims for his body. He says, These hands and feet are mine. That's something Descartes said. In principle, it would be equally true to say, The actual world is mine. Oh, man. So, so when, De when Descartes says, These hands and feet are mine, looks down, he says, These hands and feet are mine. Whitehead says, It's equally true to look at the world and say, This world is mine. Just like, just in the same way that you recognize that your body belongs to you somehow. Descartes said, your, your perception of the world, your experience of the world, even that is uniquely yours. So to Whitehead, the world is as uniquely ours as is our bodies. We are a, a unique perspective, a unique subject. One of infinite divisions of the extensive continuum. 
our world is inseparable from the subject that we are. So the world is only the way it is to us through our pers perspective. And that makes it uniquely ours, just like our bodies. That's, that's amazing. Right, he says, in Descartes' effort to guard his representative ideas from the fatal gap between mental symbol and actuality symbolized, he expresses the doctrine of objectification. So this is another quote from Descartes. The idea of the sun will be the sun itself existing in the mind, not as it exists in the sky. This mode of being is much less perfect than that in which things exist outside the mind. And you kind of see where Descartes coming from, right? He's talking about this representative idea. If I look at the sun, I'm going to get some sort of generic model or representation of the sun. It's going to give me some of the information about the sun, but not all of it. So it's not exactly the sun. It's not fully the sun. I don't understand from my image of the sun what it is exactly. Um, I'm going to have some basic information about it that's good enough for me to survive, and that's it. And, but what exists out there in the sky, that's something very different, likely, from this idea that I hold in my mind. But remember, Whitehead says the experience of the sun is what makes it real. If it's not being experienced, if it's not in your mind, then it doesn't exist in, in reality, only in potential. And I can't help, I can't help but imagine you know, the debates between uh, Niels Bohr and, and, and Albert Einstein, when, when Albert Einstein said to Niels Bohr, what, does the moon disappear when I stop looking at it? Because that's what quantum physics says. It says that the wave function collapses into reality, and that requires observation. It requires a, a subjective perspective. It, it, it re requires consciousness. That in order for something to exist in actuality, it has to be experienced. All right, he says, if we take the doctrine of objectification seriously, the extensive continuum provides the scheme of perspective by which all actual entities prehend each other. So this extensive continuum allows for experience. It provides this internally divisible you know, experience and internally divisible perspectives that allow for me to see the world as objects and to absorb that world into myself, to have that unique experience of the world that only Chris can, can experience, but also provides that same thing for all other perspectives. For you, for, all, you know, for, for everyone you've known, for everyone that's ever existed, you know, and, and, and on and on. He says, from the standpoint of any one actual entity, the world is a nexus of actual entities, transforming the potentiality of the extensive scheme into a unity. In this unity, motion cannot be attributed to any actual occasion. The unity is continuous in respect to the potentiality from which it arises. So here we have another one of those um, moments where we're going to be second-guessing kind of fundamental science, fundamental physics, you know, our intuitions about how the world is. In this case, he says, motion, right? can't exist. And, and if it does, it can't be attributed to any one experience, right? any one actual entity, because all experience is a unity, and it's all continuous in respect to itself. So you can imagine if something moves within me, you know, how can I, did I, did I move? How can I say? 
is it a part of me that moved? But I can't distinguish between a part of me and, and all of me because I am only me. So everything is one. And if everything is one, it is motion even possible. Where are you moving to if everything is one? Is there, is there a place outside of yourself? Because no, everything is one. There is nothing outside of yourself. There is nothing outside of yourself. No space for you to move in. So there can't be motion. In Whitehead's model, there is no motion. He goes on, he says, in framing cosmological theory, the notion of continuous stuff with permanent attributes retaining its self-identity through time has been fundamental. Okay, so this just means when scientists and philosophers are thinking about you know, what the world is made of, they, they usually will propose something that's fundamental and unchanging that persists through time. In ancient philosophy, they said things like, everything's made of fire and water and ether and, and, and so forth. And you know, everything changes and, and uh, transforms and so forth, but always transforming into some combination of earth and air and water and fire and ether, that kind of thing. Those, those things are fundamental and never change. And now we have the same sort of thing with uh, atomic theory, let's say, um, and even that's uh, falling apart, that atoms are something that are eternal and, and, and persist through time, but they're not, even they are not. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But this is the idea, is that when we're trying to come up with a theory of how the cosmos works, we tend to, we tend to rely on something like a continuous substance, something that persists through time, uh, that is unchanging and eternal, something like that. He says, this stuff undergoes change in respect to qualities and relations, but it is self-identical in its character of one actual entity throughout. So you might have, you might have, um, you know, energy or, or, or atoms or whatever, uh, changing in relationships, changing in qualities, but they're still the same, ultimately, fundamentally, the same things, uh, you know, uh, that you're left with, you know, the same thing you started with that you're left with. He goes on, he says, but the interpretation on which the whole concept is based has proved to be entirely mistaken. The notion of the inheritance of color, of a stone, for instance, has to, has to ha uh, has had to be given up. This introduces the difficulty that it is color which is extended, since now we have had to separate the color from the stone. Secondly, molecular theory has robbed the stone of its continuity and of its passiveness. The stone is now conceived as a society of separate molecules and violent agitation. Okay. So that's interesting. He, he's talking about a stone being something that's extended in space. That's how we used to think about it. If a stone is five inches long, it's five inches extended in space, right? Now he's saying no. He said, you know, not even something so basic as the color of the stone um, can, be, uh, can be said to be permanent in any way. Um, it's, in fact, it's the color it's, that seems to be extended. We can go back to the example of red in the sunset that we used before. It's the color that's extended through experience, right? That, that I can experience, and when I die, you can experience, and when you die, some future person can experience. And the color is one of these qualia, one of these eternal objects that Whitehead talks about. And it's, it's those things that seem to have extension. 
Then he says that molecular theory has robbed the st- even something like a stone of its continuity and passiveness. It's not something that's st- static and unchanging through time. It's actually changing all the time. It's a whole you know, vibration of atoms doing all kinds of things all the time. He says this is the root doctrine of materialism, that substance is the ultimate actual entity. But this materialistic concept has proven to be a mistake for the atom as it was for the stone. Again, the concept shifted. Protons and electrons were conceived as materialistic electric charges whose activity could be construed as locomotive adventures. But again, there's evidence that the concept may be mistaken. The mysterious quanta of energy have made their appearance, which seem to dissolve into the vibrations of light. Further, the quanta of energy are associated with the rhythms which we detect in the molecules. Thus, the quanta are in their own nature somehow vibratory. But they emanate from the protons and electrons. Thus, there is every reason to believe that rhythmic periods cannot be dissociated from the protonic and electronic entities. Well, so he's saying basically that the progress of science has demolished the idea that there's anything static and unchanging that persists through time. And even when we get all the way down to this idea of quanta of energy at the most fundamental and smallest level of reality, that even those things seem to exist as a vibration. And the vibrations cannot exist without the protons and electrons. So if the vibrations are really what underlie all of reality, and you can't separate them from protons and electrons, which are, you know, uh, actualized material objects, then basically the creative force can't be separated from creation itself. That they're one thing, the potential and the actual, God and creation, you know, the, the, the protons and electrons and the vibration that caused them. They're inseparable. They're one thing. They don't, one doesn't come first. That they are simply one thing. And he says, the notion of an enduring substance expresses a useful abstract for many purposes. But whenever we try to use it as a fundamental statement of the nature of things, it proves itself mistaken. So, there is no static substance, but rather a process. That's what Whitehead's going to tell us. And I wonder if there's a third option here to give Carl Jung his due. Maybe there's a transforming substance. Yeah, maybe there's a third option here. It's, it, it may be that there is a substance, but that substance is constantly transforming. And I think that's worth considering. That brings me to the last section here, which is called Descartes Redeemed. And it goes like this. The contrary doctrine is that an actual entity never changes. There then remain two alternatives for philosophy. A monistic universe with the illusion of change and a pluralistic universe in which change means the diversities among actual entities. So it's not clear to me why option two has to be pluralistic. I mean, I know he's making a distinction here between or incorporating the actual and the potential like he's been doing. And the the things that are made actual, these new experiences, um, that they build on each other. And so you have differences in the experience. And so you might see those differences as change. 
And I think that's I think that's fine. I think that's perfectly perfectly legitimate. I'm just not sure why option two has to be pluralistic. Seems to me like a transforming or becoming experience is monistic too. Okay, he says, the philosophy of organism extends Cartesian subjectivism by affirming the ontological principle and by construing it as the definition of actuality. So to remind you about the ontological principle, he basically just says that everything exists within something else. So it's just like a, those, those Russian dolls all the way down. Um, all experience comes from existing experience and so forth, and there's no end to it. So you've got this ontological principle, according to Whitehead, that says, you know, reality is sort of this fractal experience. So something exists within something else, and that it's that it's turtles all the way down, basically. That's how Whitehead defines actuality: something existing within something else being made actualized. Um, you know, that, that's how he's defining actuality. Then he says, the, um, uh, this amounts to the assumption that each actual entity is a locus for the universe. Each actual entity, each experience, is the center of the universe. You're an experience, I'm an experience. And each one of us is the center of the universe. And from our subjective perspective, the universe belongs uniquely to us, does it not? So that's how we find ourselves the center of, of our universe. And I find this interesting because it's it's parallels something that Jordan Peterson said. He's talking symbolically about Christianity and the cross. And he says that, that what the cross represents um, is the the divine the, the locus of the divine is to be found in the center of the cross. And of course, that's where Jesus hung. Jesus is God made flesh, so you can see that symbol. But each and every one of us is like that, a locus for the divine reality. And that's where, you know, individual rights come in, come into play politically, uh, especially in, um, in the United States and countries that, that have, uh, uh, you know, Christian roots in their, in their uh, political philosophy. I just find that to be a really interesting parallel to Whitehead. He says, according to the philosophy of organism, the extensive space-time continuum is the limitation laid upon potentiality by the actual world. A new creation has to arise from the actual world as much as from pure potentiality. It arises from the total universe. Okay. Okay, so this is really crucial. So earlier we talked about how the, the new things that are, that are born, the new experiences that come into being, that they are based or limited by what's come before them. He's going to make the same argument here about the space-time continuum, which is, the, which is what makes these relationships and experience possible in the first place. He says that is a limitation that's laid upon potentiality by the actual world. It conditions potentiality. So... Another way of saying this is to say that creation limits the creator, right? Even though the creator is infinite and, you know, what can come into being has no bounds, it still has to come from what is, and that, and that imposes some limitations, right? It takes something infinite, like God, and it makes it, it, it forces it into a box. It makes it limited, 
Now that's necessary, right? It's necessary because what is infinite cannot be experienced. If something has every quality, it cannot be experienced. There's no end to it, right? An experience is something that's temporal, right? I have to be able to have an experience. That means it has to have an end. It has to have a beginning and end before it changes. It has to have some discrete experience. Now, I can't have that if it's infinite, if there's no end to the experience. When can I say stop, you know, and, 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 and have some sort of understanding of what I've experienced? I can't. So the space-time continuum imposes this limitation on the infinity of God to make it experienceable so that God can experience itself. And that's what creation is. And, and so what's created and what's doing the creation have an equal role in what is and 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 what the universe becomes. Creator and creation are one thing. And then he says causation is nothing else than the principle that every actual entity has to house its actual world. So so me as a perspective, as a unique subjective perspective that I have to house my perspective of the world, the way the world seems to me, the way the way I experience the world. And that makes that makes me and my experience self-contained and self and self-caused and self-sustaining. Whitehead says, the creature cannot have any external adventures, but only the internal adventures of becoming. Its birth is its end. Right? So this is the idea that there is nothing outside of experience. Experience is all there is. There aren't there there is nothing other, really. So all of the experiences that are possible have to be made possible within. There is no without. And he says, this is a theory of monads, but it differs from Leibniz's in that his monads change. In the organic theory, they merely become. Each monadic creature is a mode of feeling the world, of housing the world in one unit of complex feeling. Each monadic creature, that's a subject, that's you and me, let's say. We're a mode of feeling the world, a mode of experiencing God, of housing the infinite. That's amazing. Now, this thing about Leibniz's monads, by monad, he just means, you know, a unity, like everything is one, just like Spinoza and just like Whitehead himself. Um, But he says, Leibniz says that that changes. And he says it doesn't change, it merely becomes. And I'm not sure you can really make a significant distinction between changing and becoming, but that's kind of the question of this chapter. Because to Whitehead... What becomes still includes what was. So something new comes out of you know what existed before. It's not. It didn't change what existed before. That thing is still there. It's still a part of the constitution of this new thing that's become. And to Leibniz, there seems to be a difference there. I don't know how crucial that is, but the last bit here goes like this: In the organic philosophy, an actual entity has perished when it is complete. The creature perishes and is immortal. This conception of an actual entity in the world is little more than an expansion of a sentence in the Timaeus. So here's a quote from Plato. That which is conceived, 
is always in a process of becoming and perishing and never really is. That brings me to my conclusion. Always in a process of becoming and never really is brings to mind what in Eastern philosophy is called non-being. This doesn't mean nothing, quite the opposite. Rather, it is synonymous with what a whitehead and I call potentiality. Potentiality is, as it sounds, that which is necessary for anything actual to exist. It is the raw material of experience, in a manner of speaking. To Whitehead, however, it is always inseparably joined with what already is. Everything that exists, all experience, is understood as nested within prior experience and the web of relationships among them. But what kicked off the experiential process and houses, to use Whitehead's phrase, the extensive continuum of all experience? At times, Whitehead calls that God, but even God is inseparable from the actual world. So what is God exactly? Whitehead previously describes his ontological principle, whereby potentiality is forever transforming itself into actuality. But here he introduces the subjective aim of the process, asserting that potential directs its own actuality. It controls the way in which it manifests in the world. This is not possible without what he calls the mental pole of the world. What exactly is the mental pole? Whitehead describes the extensive continuum as the relational complex in which potential can be experienced as something other than itself, as an object. It is a scheme of division that breaks up the, inf the infinite and unity of potential so that it can experience itself. It is exactly this experience that transforms potentiality into something real and actual. Reality to Whitehead lives in experience. But experience is not blind. It's not nameless or selfless. It is always attached to a perspective, to a subject, to a knower. And it is this that brings back the question of the mental pole of the world. It, according to Whitehead, is what determines the subjective form of its own cre self-creation. And so it is necessary for experience, full stop. The mental pole of the world belongs to the potentiality that made the world. They are inseparable. God, consciousness, and experience. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>